Well, welcome to week two of the Last Supper on the Moon. We are so glad to welcome you at every single Fresh Life location, church online, and then partner churches all around the world through our friendship with the Open Network. Uh, we're talking loosely about themes that resonate with the message that's in this book. Uh, but within the series, we are really on a parallel track because we're covering content not in the book, uh, but that is found in the Gospel of John. So if you brought a copy of the scriptures with you, we're gonna be in John chapter four today, John chapter four. This is week two. If you're just jumping in now, welcome. We're glad you're here. If you came at the invitation of a friend uh, or something you found uh, in your life made you just want to get to church. It really means a lot that you would come. Thank you. Come on, let's welcome our first time guests. And what we find in John's gospel, the fourth chapter, is the second of seven signs. That's his words. John said, as he wrote his gospel, I'm including seven different signs. And really sign, the way we use it in, in our culture, it could be more like clues. We might say seven clues as to who Jesus is. Seven things, and by the way, you want to collect them all. So make sure you come back for all the weeks of this series. Uh, as, as these seven things are meant to work together to give us a, a picture of who Jesus is. Now, John's gospel, out of the four different gospels we have, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are like four different camera angles on the same story. It's not installments, like, you know, you have the, the Harry Potter series. It's four different camera angles on the same story. So what you might have on a film set is a GoPro cam, a jib cam, a drone cam, the tight shot, right? All those different cameras are all filming the same sequence. In the Gospels, you have these four different accounts of the same story for four different purposes because they all had different audiences they specifically had in mind as they wrote, and they're all emphasizing different things. Now, John said, hey, I wrote my gospel at the end. He said, I wrote this whole thing just to straight up try and show you who Jesus is so that you might believe that he is the son of God and that you might have life in his name. Because by the way, that is what happens when you believe that Jesus is the son of God, you receive life in his name. So he said, having walked around with Jesus, because he was one of the original gangsters, right? He was, he was one of Jesus's three best friends because Jesus had 500 disciples that were with him a lot. He had 12 apostles who were with him almost constantly. And out of those 12, he picked out three and they got to see things that nobody else saw. Like when he went up on the Mount of, of Transfiguration and started to glow in the dark and his clothes got super shiny and Moses and Elijah pulled a Bill and Ted's excellent adventure and came back and hung out with him for a hot minute. Only three of the 12 got to see that. Peter, James, and John. Now you're like, they must be super spiritual. They must have had really shiny halos. No, I think they needed more supervision, quite frankly. When you read the Gospels, you just start to see they couldn't be left alone. These guys had to use safety scissors, okay? So that's why he brought them with him. And even when they got there, you know, they were just always putting their foot in their mouth, like getting into fights over who's the best apostle. Peter being like, bro, we should stay here forever. We should build some tents and just stay here, go to REI and stay here. And God the Father had to audibly cut him off and be like, shh, let, let the adults talk, you know? Like, there's, there's a plan for all of this, Peter. Well, out of all that he saw, John assembled some of the material into the book called the Gospel of John, and he admitted it's not exhaustive. He actually said, if I tried to write everything Jesus did, it would, it would fill up all the libraries on earth because I would have to go back to even before creation because Jesus has no beginning, right? So I didn't, I didn't say everything he did. I just picked some material. I assembled it to show you who he is. 
And these seven signs or seven clues are miracles that he performed that all send a powerful message. The first we looked at last week, and it was the turning of water into wine. It was a very important miracle, a very telling miracle. It was loaded because it was his first day on the job as Messiah. Had been baptized, spirit had come upon him like a dove, had gone 40 days in the wilderness, and now he's like, I'm the Messiah, I'm ready to begin my ministry. And like the president, so to speak, first 100 days on the job, it was telling of the administration to come what he chose to do first. So it's significant that he chose to go to a wedding, a wedding where they had run out of wine, and he turned water into wine at a wedding. Why did we say, if you were here last week, that's significant? Because in Scripture, wine stands for two things, healing as medicine and something that lubricates celebration. It's a picture of joy. It's a picture of, of life being good, of God's blessing on this good earth. And it was at a wine at a, a wine-free wedding, meaning the, the wine had run dry, that he stopped this young couple from the social embarrassment and humiliation that would have been theirs for being the couple who had no wine at their wedding, that he stepped in to reverse shame and humiliation in a world where the wine always runs out, meaning the medicine always runs out. Try as you might, you will die. Try as you might, there will be an end to the celebration you find on this planet. But he says, in distinction to all that, I have wine that doesn't run dry. Come to me for the medicine. Come to me for the healing. Come to me for the celebration. This is our Jesus. So that was in miniature what he was doing in his entire ministry. And so that was the first sign. And today we come to sign number two, to miracle number two that John records, and it's in the fourth chapter. And I want to give to you from this text that we're going to read in a moment, a message that I'm calling the gift of rejection. The gift of rejection. Could it be that when we are rejected in life, or feel rejected, or feel that all too familiar taste of disappointment, being picked over, being looked over, being forgotten. When we feel like we've been rejected, is it possible that we have been handed a strangely wrapped present? John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. I'm going to read to you the whole thing, and then we'll come back and try and draw some conclusions, but we'll, bless, we'll believe that God can even and will even bless just the reading of his word. It says, Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before 
my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was going down now, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your words, that you would give us insight that is not our own. You, you yourself said that we cannot know, that natural man cannot know the things that are written unless the Spirit helps him. And so we do ask what the psalmist prayed, that you would send your Spirit to open up the eyes of our heart to see glorious truths in your word. We trust that you are able, like the skilled carpenter who has a whole cabinet, a whole vehicle full of tools so that the right tool is selected for the right job. We believe that you are able to use the same scripture, the same word to go a hundred different ways to do a hundred different things in our lives, to comfort, to encourage, to convict, to save, to heal. We ask for your will to be done, not even knowing what you would possibly want to do in our midst in these moments. So we just ask for you to have your way. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. And we said together, amen. The strangely wrapped gift of rejection. I felt it as a child. I remember in third grade, uh, I found out I had asthma in, in the third grade. That was when I first had trouble breathing. You know, I t-ball, never really, never really was an issue. Second grade t-ball, little, little bit of a peewee basketball before that. But all the sports and recess never really surfaced the activity-induced asthma until the third grade. And then I vividly recall running baseline, you know, side of baseline to the other in tennis, just getting out of breath and not being a normal out of breath because it just was like really hard. It was like someone was sitting on my chest. And I remember like just vividly like thinking if I could pull at the skin at my throat, maybe I could breathe better. And my tennis teacher kept telling my parents like, your son keeps pulling at the skin of his throat. I don't think he's breathing well. And you know, it's just when you're a parent, you're, you're with your kids all the time, you probably don't even notice that. She's like, oh yeah, it's just the thing Levi does. He's always pulling at the, it's kind of sad when you think about it, right? Pulling at the skin of his throat. And, uh, and so they got me checked out and like, yes, he has asthma, got me an inhaler. I would take it, you know, 30 minutes before sports and it's been much better. I mean, to the present day, if I have a cold, it really flares up. Just a moment ago, I was taking my asthma medication because just feeling a little bit of touch to that, that breathing. And I've learned how in healthier eating, staying hydrated, it can get a little bit better, but, but still a, a part of my life. But I was born into like the most athletic family ever. Like my dad played football and track in college. And as the legend goes, you know, set track records that were at the time of me growing up, still standing at South Central Michigan State, you know, and, and it's just all this. My mom uh, lived in Canada for a lot of her upbringing where she played hockey. And then coming back to America, there was no, in Colorado, women's hockey leagues. And so she got the rules changed and became the only female player on an all men's hockey league. All right, so that's my mom, all right? Okay, all right, so, so there you go. And, and then I, I'm, I'm like the runt of the litter of all the runts of the litter, okay? Only child not over six feet tall. My six foot tall sister went to play volleyball in New York on, an, on a full ride volleyball scholarship. My, my younger brother, who's taller than me, I'm not salty, it's just a thing. Uh, he ended up like 
track and foot high school and running track out all the way to state and football and just athletic you know just out the ears and um and then there's me and uh you know here I'm, I'm huffing and puffing like with my with my inhaler from from goonies and um <laughs> but i got inspired to like you know get after it athletically right after jenny and i got married i was like i was putting on some weight it's a thing your metabolism slows down you start eating well and consistently and uh and so i was like man i need to run so i got motivated got some friends together we're gonna do this this run we're gonna do this this run on camp pendleton marine base there's this thing called the mud run and you would you would run and i think it was like 6.2 miles which is 10k and 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 i i we were all excited uh, to do this and uh there's there's marines though and the marines are yelling at you the entire time it's very stressful and they're like shooting fire hoses at you you come around the corner you have to army crawl under flags thankfully not barbed wire and live rounds right and 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 then jump over a wall and they're like lying to you when you come up this hill like you only have a little bit to go and you have miles left it's treacherous really and but i got excited i got some friends together to to run and got we started training and i was like stretching my hamstrings and you know just like full kitted out like bought all the clothes and like the shoes and just every day running 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 and my brother my brother comes into town uh the weekend of the race friday night shows up in uh southern california what do you do this weekend oh no big deal just uh doing a little run you know and he's like oh yeah could, can i come with you i'm like you haven't been training probably wouldn't be a good idea wouldn't recommend it and uh when he gets online finds out there's a bib left gets a bib i'm like do you even have running shoes like, i think i have some vans in the car you know like not even running shoes i'm like i don't even know if they're gonna allow you to run without uh you know like a full kit of, of running clothes and uh a plastic baggie with an inhaler in it which i am gonna have and um <laughs> so he runs and like destroys me i never see him the entire run and i come in like looking haggard like i literally look half dead at the at the finish line and uh he's just over there eating a banana it doesn't even look like he broke a sweat right and yet, in spite of the fact that this led to feelings of rejection, never having been the first to be picked at kickball in my life, to me figuring out what do I like? What am I good at? What, have, what has God gifted me peculiarly to do? And what it was was reading. And what it, that's when I found myself, and that's when I felt alive. And so I was always that kid with my nose in a book, and I read every book in my house, and then I read them again, and I would borrow books, and I would go to the library and check out books and finish them and do contests in the summertime of how many books you could read in a summer. Y'all, it pays off to be a reader, apparently, because readers are leaders and leaders are readers. But I'm not saying you should be a reader if you're a runner, or you should, you should, you should aspire to play football if God didn't build you that way. What I'm trying to get you to see is in my life, I've found that one sort of rejection can actually become an invitation to the life that God did build you to live. Rejection can be a gift. And I see that all over this text where Jesus has an appointment with a man who has a terrible need in his life. But before we get there, a word about the subject of reception. I'm going to give you today seven words that I hope you'll jot down. The first is reception, because it comes up in this text. It says that Jesus ended up there doing ministry because they received him. It's an important distinction to make because it explicitly says he did not remain in Judea, 
nor did he go back to his hometown of Nazareth, but instead he chose to go to Galilee and specifically within Galilee to Cana because the Galileans received him. How did this miracle take place? Well, we could say it's the same case of how it took place last week. Why was Jesus at the wedding? The text tells us he was invited. Could it be so simple? Could it be so simple as God is willing to work in my marriage if I invite him? Is it so simple as God is willing to work in my church if I invite him? It, could it be so simple that God would show up at my workplace tomorrow and I don't have to dread my nine to five, but I could see it as this tremendous assignment and the spirit has sent me into my workplace, into my school, into my classroom, into, into the hardest thing I go. Could I be sent on mission? Could, I, could, could God go with me? Would he go before me? Would he stand behind me? It's so simple. And so many overlook it and look at others and God seems to work in their life and God seems to work in their life. Try inviting him into your life. Try inviting him into your day. Try inviting him into your commute. Try inviting him into, into your carpool. Whatever the craziest, most hectic part of your life is, invite him in and won't he do it? Won't he show up and turn some water into wine in your situation? He didn't go to Nazareth. He didn't stay in Judea. Why? Well, in his words, to quote him, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. Jesus was born in Judea, in Bethlehem, but his hometown was Nazareth. Nazareth and, and Judea tended to be the most difficult ministry assignments Jesus had. Let that sink in for a second. The places that had the most access also were the most inhospitable to Jesus' manifestations of power that he wanted to show. Because it's not like he didn't try. It's not like he, he wasn't willing to. Matter of fact, he kind of showed up in Nazareth at the synagogue and the scroll Isaiah was handed to him and he read prophecies about himself. And then he closed the scroll and said, y'all, today in your hearing, these words are fulfilled. The Spirit of God is upon me. God is about to work. And do you know what they did? Luke 4, 29, they jumped up and mobbed him. They forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. Someone called Gordon Ramsay. We got a church plant nightmare that's taking place up in here. They wanted nothing to do with him. Why? Would it be the place Jesus grew up had no room for him becoming who God had built him to be? Because there was this sense of, we, we've known you our whole lives. What makes you better than us? We know your brothers. We know where you're from. We know, we, know your, we know your dad, Joseph. We saw you in the carpenter shop. So now you aspiring to God given greatness, which he has given to you, it threatened them. And they viewed themselves as being somehow less than if he became, and you'll feel this on a smaller sense, on a micro sense in your lives. If you aspire to change, there will be at times people in your life who try and drag you down, who try and pull you down because misery at times loves company. And when you take hold of your God-given destiny, there will always be people who will say to you stuff like, you've changed. And you know what you should say? I hope so. I hope so because when has staying the same ever done anything good for anyone? Not that there's a sense of, 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 um, of, of 
you know, grandiosity in you, but a sense of destiny, a humble sense of, I want everything that God has for me. And so in Nazareth, they, it offended their egos and their pride, and they couldn't see past themselves to him because they were familiar with him. You can become too familiar with things that you stop, to, you stop appreciating them. And so there wasn't the reception to Jesus's ministry. And so he could not, not would not, could not. This is theologically a lot. It's dense stuff here. This isn't the appetizer, okay? We're, we're cutting our teeth into some steak here. He could not do mighty work in Nazareth. You're like, Levi, I'm gonna need to see a scripture uh, to believe that. All my, not my Jesus, he could do anything. Oh, really? Well, read what it says in Mark 6, 5. He could do no mighty work there. So he just laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them on his way out of town. <laughs> Sidebar, would love to have a bad Jesus ministry day, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, total dud, just a bunch of sick people got healed and off he, off he went. I've had worse speaking engagements, okay? But how incredible is it to think that this reveals Jesus' priority? That the one thing that we tend to make the main thing was actually to him an afterthought. Not that helping and healing sick bodies and feeding hungry people is unimportant because it is important, but he only ever did physical miracles so he could get to the actual miracle he was most impressed by, the miracle on the inside. Because you know what? A withered hand being healed, dope. Someone with leprosy being given their life again, epic. A, a, a sick person being, being raised up who had never walked and now they're what? This is to be celebrated, is to be believed for, and I believe is something that God still does in the world today. We have not at times because we ask not. We should ask and we should believe and we should trust that it is something God can still do. But guess what? It never is the thing that Jesus is most excited by. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, any sick person who got healed is dead today. But any person who came to life in Christ is more alive today and will be 10,000 years from now. So this is the priority. This is what lights up heaven. This is what Jesus Christ came to do. It wasn't his miracles. It wasn't wonderfully inspiring sermons to be bundled up next to the great quotes from, you know, Muhammad Gandhi and, and the Buddha and other enlightened thinkers over the, over the years. What set Jesus apart was his death on the cross and his resurrection, which paved the way for eternal life for anybody who believes in him. And so it was a failure. He couldn't save anyone. Because you, you can feed someone who doesn't believe. Someone can even apparently be healed who doesn't believe. But nobody has ever been saved without belief. For it is the just who are just are just by faith. When you meet people in heaven, you can have a lot of questions for them. How'd you die? What was your life like? But you won't ever need to ask anybody how they got there. It is by trust in Jesus Christ. And that is what alone can save. And so Nazareth, as he considered, and I see Jesus, he's, he's most recently, by the way, spent some time in Samaria. And most of my preaching career that I've spent time in God's Word in John 4, I've been focused on this wonderful story of a woman at a well. And, and there is incredible revival that broke loose in a place that the Jews hated. 
The Samaritans were hated by the Jews, and the, 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 the Jews were hated by the Samaritans. And when Jesus was leaving Jerusalem from the feast where he had done some, some miracles, he uh, chose to go to Samaria. And the disciples were shocked and confused because, shockingly, there was then and is still now racial tension and bigotry and people who thought our way is the right way and your church is stupid and how you worship God is wrong. And, and turns out brokenness is just a part of the human condition and will be until Jesus Christ returns. And so they're like, how dare you preach there? And and oh my gosh, he was preaching to a woman. And when this woman was saved, she preached and began to tell other people about the goodness of God. And they all came out. And there was this incredible revival. And Jesus, who was just passing through to meet this woman, stayed for two days of revival. That's why the first verse I read to you said, now the two days were over. And an incredible reception in Samaria. They wanted him to stay longer. No reception in Nazareth. Very little reception in Bethlehem. And so he chose to go to Galilee. Why? For there they received him readily. He would spend most of his time in Capernaum. It would become home base for his operations. But on this day, interestingly enough, and it's strange when you see him go to Galilee, you almost expect him to head to Capernaum. But it says, nope, he went to Cana where he had already done a miracle. And then it says, but a man from Capernaum, hearing he was in Cana, ran to come to get him in Cana. Okay, and this guy comes in, bursts through the door, and there is, second word now, desperation all over his face, all over his face. And when he begins to speak, you understand why. My son is at the point of death. Interestingly enough, this is what Jesus said, don't eat from the tree in the Garden of Eden. Death will come into mankind, death will come in. If you eat it, you'll die. Adam and Eve did eat it, and they did die eventually. But first, they died inwardly, spiritually. And to be dead spiritually and then to die physically is to remain dead perpetually. And that is what God did not want to happen. And that's why he promised in the garden, the cross is going to come. I'm going to come and pay for the sins so that you can have life eternally. And dying physically will be a gift. Because if you die physically, dead, alive spiritually, you can be promised that you will participate in the resurrection eternally. Because he's going to come and bring every... Every loved one you've ever loved who's died in Christ, back to life. That's what he has said he would do. And so it's a different way to look at it all. But when death first did show up, it wasn't Adam and Eve. It was Abel. Cain slew Abel. Jenny pointed out to me as we were reading through the Bible this year as a family, she said, isn't it interesting that the first to die was a child, not the father or the mother? And indeed, the grief would be unbearable for Adam and Eve they knew death had come in, and now the sins of the father and mother were being visited on the, the brothers as Cain killed Abel, and they had to grieve Abel's death. And really, it was two griefs because they now had to grieve life with, with Cain being removed. For He was a fugitive, the Bible says, from that day forward on the earth. So there's just so much sadness and sorrow, and that is what was written on this man's face. My son is sick. And then he says this. He says, he says won't, you, won't you come with me? And, and interestingly enough, Jesus responds in frustration turning to the crowd and going, man, none of you are, are willing to believe unless you see some razzle-dazzle miracle. And his frustration written on his face that he responds to a man who's got a great need. And all, all of us are a little bit like, if we could pull Jesus aside, we're like, hey, not cool. Not cool. They're going to write this down. That's super mean, bro. Right? Frustration. Why, why this frustration? You have to understand the context. This man, the text says, was a nobleman. But in the Greek, it's actually the king's man. 
Many people believed that he worked for King Herod because King Herod was the only king in this area at this time under the, the Augustus Caesar, who, who was actually ruler of the whole realm at this time. And so this man was somehow part of Herod's throne room, one of Herod's cronies, perhaps one of Herod's relatives. And we know there was like a sense in which Herod liked Jesus because he heard of some of the miracles and wanted to see it, much like you would want to go see David Blaine, right? Or, or you would be like, oh yeah, Copperfield, this is super cool, I love it. Check it out on YouTube, right? Like this is, this is awesome. Herod didn't love Jesus, but he wanted to see the miracles. In fact, the Bible tells us Herod Luke 23.8, this is at the end of Jesus' life, was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. But Jesus did not come to perform magic tricks. And so in this moment, when the man comes to ask for him to do something, he was responding to the popular sentiment that had put Jesus on this man's radar. You guys just want to see a miracle. You don't actually want anything to do with me. You just want me to do things for you. You don't actually want me, is what he was saying here. And that man, in response to Jesus' frustration, could have huffed away. I, I, there, you're not the only medicine man. You're not the only, you know, shaman. You're not the only healer, okay? I could go find someone who's got some doTERRA oil to, you know, bring to my son. I could... I'm sorry, I apologize. That was a little too close to home for some of you. He, I could find someone else to, to help my, my son out. He could have, and that is what Jesus was kind of giving him here, an opportunity to be offended because the gospel is always bitter on the outside and sweet on the inside. Unlike sin, which is sweet on the outside, but bitter on the inside. And so Jesus will always offend. He did not come to bring peace first, but he came to bring a sword. And if you're not offended on behalf of that, the fact that he says, die, die with me, give me your life, lay down your life, die as, and you'll find it. Then, then there's the, the next chance to that next invitation, that next level, you're, you're invited in. And that man did not get offended. In fact, he doubled down now. So Jesus is frustrated, kind of. And I like to think of Jesus frustrated, but then having to hide it a little bit, like hoping the man will keep with him. And that's exactly what happens because the man then says, please come down with me. My dear child is dying. Different Greek word. First, it was just my son is sick and at the point of death. Now he says, my baby boy, please come down with me. And we're like, come on, Jesus, let the, let, the, let the act down now. Like show him the smile. And, and instead, Jesus says, no, your son's fine. Your son's fine. Just go home. The man said, what was the request? Come with me. Come into my home. Put your hand on him and heal him. Come with me. The whole walk, I'll be able to tell you about him. This is his name, and this is what he does, and this is what happened, and he fell down, and I don't understand, and the fever, it broke, and, 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 right? and the whole walk, Jesus would be with this man. Come with me was the request. Jesus said, no. You go. Go home. He's fine. Your boy is fine. He lives. So it was a what? rejection. Jesus rejected this man's request, ultimately, giving him something he did not ask for, which was to come with me and help me. He says, no, but he's fine, so just go ahead and walk there yourself. And amazingly, we see what? In response, submission. Next word you got to jot down. This man submitted and yielded, and that he, he, he did exactly what Jesus said, and he walked his way. How far? 22 miles was the distance from Capernaum to Cana. He had already walked it once that day. 22 miles he had walked it. 
to, to meet Jesus. And he got there, like how long would it take? I mean, this is hours and hours and hours and hours of walking. You can walk four to five miles on average per hour. Slower if you got the asthma. And uh, he gets there, meets Jesus, says this. Jesus says, he's fine, go. He heads out. When, when he gets home, it's the next day because he had to sleep somewhere because he didn't have a flashlight. Ancient world, you did not travel at night. It was not possible. So he has to sleep somewhere, wake up, finish the journey. His servants meet him out front of the house. Your, your, your boy lives, the exact word that Jesus gave him. Your boy lives, your boy lives. When did he get better? Yesterday at such and such a time. And he knew it was exactly when Jesus said the words, your son lives. But he had to walk in faith taking Jesus at his word. The second sign shows us that we must believe without seeing, not the other way around. We want to see in order to believe, but Jesus has always said, blessed are you if you believe even when you haven't seen. And I love this picture of a 22-mile miracle. 22 miles where he had to believe and trust God for and keep moving and not lose heart and keep walking and keep and then go to sleep and then wake up and keep going and keep going, believing that even though he wasn't given what he asked for, that if Jesus spoke the word, then I'm going to keep walking in faith, believing I'm going to see it before it's over. <laughs> and, and then Jesus really gave a miracle. You know what the miracle was? Salvation. That's, that's the sixth word. This man got to see the, the miracle he didn't ask for. He didn't even know he needed it. As he and his household got saved. That's the miracle to pray to God for. May my whole household be saved. Jesus, may my whole family be saved. If my son does good in soccer or not, if my daughter does good in school or not, becomes a cheerleader like I was or not, gets into this school or not, may my children and my grandchildren be saved because then theirs is the kingdom of heaven forever. Not just a GPA, not just doing good on the dance team. May me and my house serve the Lord. He got the miracle. He, Jesus said no to the miracle he asked for. To give him one he didn't even know he needed. The gift of rejection. And at the end of the story, this man got to walk away with something I'm, I'm praying that God gives us all. And you can only have it by faith. 2020 vision where you look back. 2020 vision is our seventh word. 2020 vision is where you look back and you see what you didn't see then when you were being rejected. Michael Collins was the third crew member on Apollo 11. Buzz Aldrin took communion on the moon. Neil Armstrong got to be the first to walk on the moon. Michael Collins was a part of the mission. Interestingly, to this text, he was the only living human at that time outside of, you know, an aborigine deep in the jungle who could not watch Neil take that first step on the moon. Half a billion people on earth tuned in. Half a billion. Watched it, listened to it on the radio. Anybody who had ability was watching and listening when, when Neil took that step and, and said those words, this one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Michael Collins could not watch and Michael Collins could not listen. And ironically, of course, he was closer to the two who were doing it than anybody alive as he was orbiting the moon in Columbia. 
but because he was on the back side of the moon, the dark side of the moon, no radio reception could receive him. And he was in complete and total radio blackout. How crazy is it? The one person alive who couldn't watch and listen to what we had all been waiting for all these years was the person closest to the fire. May that never be so among us. May those of us who have seen and heard always be seeing and hearing what Jesus is doing and excited to see it extended in new places and new people. But the 2020 vision and Michael Collins and the interestingness about this all goes further because he didn't belong on Apollo 11. He was never supposed to be there because he was rostered on the crew of Apollo 8. He was supposed to be several missions before, a part of the crew that would go to the moon for the first time, circle around it, and then come back home. The first time we went to the moon was not 11, it was eight. And Michael Collins was supposed to be there, but something happened to his spine. A degenerative disease caused there to be a breakdown between the sixth and seventh cervix, and his legs went numb inexplicably one day. And he couldn't feel them in hot and cold water. He couldn't feel it on the calf muscle. So we went in to get an x-ray and they found out there's a problem with your spine and unless we fix it, you can never be ejected out of a fighter plane again. You can never do any of this. The Air Force will ground you, NASA will ground you. You are off this mission. He was heartbroken because the diagnosis meant he could not participate in this historic mission to go around the moon for the first time. He said, his words, when the prognosis diagnosis came out, he said, I had been dropped from the crew as soon as the necessity for my operation had become apparent. Dropped, he said, like a hot potato. Rejected. They had to put him under the knife, cutting, slitting his throat this way, taking a piece of bone from his hip and installing it to his neck and hoping it would strengthen and be able to clear him for flight again. But he honestly had no hope of this happening. But then it did. And they said, we have a mission for you. You're going to be a part of, not Apollo 8, sorry about that. You're going to be a part of Apollo 11. You're going to go down in history as one of the three who got to be a part of man landing on the moon for the first time. How? Because of rejection. And, and aren't there so many stories like that? I mean, as we come through history, does not Steve Jobs go down in history as saying that being fired from Apple was the best thing that ever happened to him? Otherwise, he wouldn't have started Pixar only to come back and own Apple again. I mean, when we think about Tom Brady being the 199th draft pick, when we think about his draft bio, talking about how sickly and weak he was and how he couldn't throw and he just wasn't much to look at. How you like them apples? How you like me now? Love him or hate him? You gotta respect what he's done. The point is in your life, it's hard when you see it, it's hard when you face it, but I dare you to believe in Jesus' name, there's a gift inside rejection that God is moving and working. He has a plan. He's up to something in your life. And so, Father, we trust and pray that what we're seeing right now isn't all that there is. And that you're working in the earth, you're working in our lives. I pray by your Spirit's power, you would help us to see rejection differently. And that if you ever choose to not give us what we ask for, it's because you want to give us what we don't even realize we need. And so we say to you, you do all things well. And if as we're praying all across our church and all the churches in this moment, if you would say, God, I want you to help me see the gift of rejection, to see it differently, my situation, my life. Or you would say, I want you to help me to not 
be cursed by my knowledge, to not have my life be something you can't work in because there's not receptivity. I'm asking for Jesus people who are saying in this moment, open my eyes, give me new insight, God. If that's you I'm describing, could you just raise up a hand all across, all across this moment? Thank you, Father, for what you're doing. Thank you for those who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Bless these with the uncanny ability to be unshakable, even when situations are all adding up to tell a story that you don't, you're not good, that you don't have a plan, that we would resolutely hold on to you. And like Job say, though you slay me, I will follow you, even if and especially when you don't make sense to me. Because God, your ways are not my ways. You can put your hands down. And I wanna now extend an invitation to anybody who today is listening to this message and your heart is heavy because you are, as scripture says, without God and without hope in this world. You've never trusted Jesus for salvation. You might be religious, you might know things about God, but you don't know God. You don't have a personal relationship with him, but you can because Jesus said, if you are thirsty, come to me and drink. If you're tired, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. He died on the cross for you. He rose from the dead. And the Bible says his spirit is in the world moving, drawing people to Christ. We cannot come to God unless the Father draws us. And I believe that's happening now in this day of salvation where the door is open and all who are willing can come. You're saying, Levi, that's, I want to do that, but what, what do I need to do? Well, that's just it, you can't do anything. You must simply receive. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to that cross I cling. With that spirit of receptivity, you must say, come into my life, come into my soul, forgive me. And if that's what you wanna do, I would be so honored to lead you in a prayer. With every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, respecting the privacy of this moment. If you're ready to trust Jesus for salvation, say this out loud after me. Church family, say it with us. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I'm hurting, I need you. Please come into my life, make me new. I give myself to you, in Jesus' name.